welcome to Mystic Dog Mama, the podcast for soul-led dog mamas, where you'll discover how to best nourish your dog and yourself, mind, body, and soul. I'm your host, Dr. Alexia Miller. Thank you so much for being here with me for this week's episode, where I talk to renowned veterinarian, Dr. Tom Lonsdale. I'm excited for every episode that I share with you, but I've been really eager to share this particular conversation with all of you mystic dog mamas who, like me, are always keen to learn more about how to best feed your dog. The world of canine nutrition can be overwhelming and confusing to say the least, so throughout this podcast, I will be bringing different experts from the fresh feeding world to talk to you about their perspectives and philosophies on how to provide your dog with the optimum diet. And it's my hope that in doing so, you'll be able to find approaches that resonate with you and your pup. As always, if you have specific questions about anything related to feeding your dog, or you want me to cover a particular nutrition topic in an episode, please reach out to me on Instagram at Mystic Dog Mama. I wanted to start these conversations around nutrition by going back to the basics, but also with a topic that I see so many people struggling with when it comes to fresh food feeding, and that's the subject of raw meaty bones. For those that may be new to this term, raw meaty bones, or you might see it written as RMBs, are actually just what they sound like. Raw bones with some meat left on them that allow your dogs to indulge their canine nature by ripping, tearing, and crunching. This is different from providing ground bone or bone meal in raw minces. Yes, the ground bones provide valuable minerals, but as Dr. Tom Lonsdale will talk about, The value of raw meaty bones is that through the ripping, tearing, and crunching that they require, they provide the key to the carnivore code, which is that they help keep the dog's teeth and gums free of harmful bacteria, which can lead to a whole host of other health problems, including things like kidney disease. Dr. Lonsdale's perspective is that if you only take one thing away from this chat, It's that ditching the commercial kibbles and replacing them with raw meaty bones will improve your dog's physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. To give you some background, Dr. Tom Lonsdale has dedicated himself to protecting pets for five decades as a highly respected and accomplished veterinarian with more than 50 years of experience in the field. He has become one of the world's leading natural feeding experts and the preeminent advocate for raw meaty bones. He first began to suspect that an industrial diet of highly processed commercial pet food could be causing a wide range of serious health issues for dogs and cats in the late 1980s. He discovered, to pet owners' delight, that numerous ailments, not least the visible dental and gum disease that seems endemic in the pet population, could be rectified by swapping what he refers to as junk pet food for high-quality raw meaty bones. This marked the beginning of three decades of observation, research, and campaigning to improve the health and well-being of pets through a diet of raw meaty bones. 
as well as helping pet owners and their pets through the advocation of raw meaty bones, he has given voice to the voiceless by consistently calling for global pet food manufacturers and those veterinary schools and practices that he accuses of colluding with pet food manufacturers to be held accountable for their actions. Dr. Lonsdale believes they are deceiving pet owners and harming pets by selectively ignoring scientific fact around the inadequacy of junk pet food in the pursuit of profit maximization. Dr. Lonsdale writes extensively on the link between diet and periodontal disease and how raw meaty bones are the key to a healthy carnivore. His books include Raw Meaty Bones Promote Health, Work Wonders, Feed Your Dog Raw Meaty Bones, and his latest multi-billion dollar pet food fraud hiding in plain sight. In this conversation, Dr. Lonsdale and I talk about how he came to the realization that raw meaty bones are the key to the carnivore code and how he awoke from a dream one Christmas morning in the early 1990s with his cybernetics and periodontal disease hypothesis fully formed. This hypothesis suggests that nature operates through a series of interconnected feedback loops, and the way she helps to keep the carnivore population in check is through periodontal disease. It's a fascinating topic, and I know you're going to love hearing him talk about it. He also shares his touching and heartfelt response to my question of what dogs have taught him about what it means to be human. And one final note before we get started is that this episode is supported by Aspirationary, which in full transparency is another project of mine where we create books, notebooks, and stationery to help you become all you aspire to be. Come check out our moon magic and shadow work journals and workbooks on our Aspirationary Instagram account. That's spelled A-S-P-I-R-A-T-I-O-N-E-R-Y. I'll leave the link in the show notes. Okay, that's enough of an intro, so let's go. Dr. Tom Lonsdale, thank you so much for joining me on the Mystic Dog Mama podcast. It is such a pleasure to have you here. Truly a pleasure for me. And wonderful to know that you're in Baja, California, all that, those miles away, and that we can have this discussion. It's I know. Extraordinary. It is really wonderful. The power of technology. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, with with the podcast overall, one of my missions is really to look at how we can nourish our dogs, ourselves, and the planet, mind, body, and soul. And so with that, I'm inviting people to have a variety of conversations that address various components of that. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because I feel as though your work with quite literally writing the book on raw meaty bones actually ticks all of those boxes with looking at how we best nourish our dog's body from a very from a physical perspective how raw meaty bones give dogs the opportunity for enrichment so therefore engaging them on a mental level and actually one of the things I really loved in both reading your books as well as some of the the podcast episodes that I've heard you speak on is about the the spiritual component actually that kind of spiritual joy of watching your dog with a raw meaty bone and knowing that they are living their ultimate carnivore life <laughs> as, as they're engaging with this um, so I'm, I'm really excited to have a conversation with you today about that. 
Splendid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I find it most uplifting. And uh, every time I see a dog eating its proper food, um, I get that tingle of excitement, of interest, mm. of uh, the feeling of belonging. And it's mm. great. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. One of the things that I was hoping you could talk about um, around raw meaty bones, there's often a lot of confusion for, for pet parents around uh, the way that bones are kind of described as either edible or recreational. And there's a lot of fear for some pet parents around actually feeding bones because they've been told that they can fracture their teeth, they could create obstruction, et cetera. I was wondering if you could kind of give a, a raw meaty bones 101 for somebody who's trying to understand what this actually is and what is the benefit to their dog. Okay, well, it's a big question um, with many different components. But the first thing to do is for the listener or the viewer here today to disabuse themselves of all that nonsense that they believe was true and, and to talk about the edible bone and the recreational bone and so on. This is utter nonsense that's being peddled by devious people with an unpleasant agenda, in my view. We... We made it clear back in the early 90s that the raw meaty bones are the key to the carnivore code. In, indeed, in 1992, Christmas morning, I woke up with a cybernetic hypothesis of periodontal disease in my brain that had been implanted there spiritually or um, mystically, if you like, in the night, and I wrote it down. Uh, the raw meaty bones are the key to the carnivore code. They're the sine qua non. They're the absolute must-have for your carnivore. That's why the wolf pack is prepared to run 40 kilometers through deep snow in the hope, in the hope, only the hope, of bringing down a moose. Um, it's that important to them to be able to sink their ca canine teeth into the hide and rip and tear the flesh and the sinews and then crunch the bone. Mm -hmm. This is absolutely at the core of their being. That's why Aesop's fables uh, depict the dog with the bone on the, um, on the bridge and it sees its reflection and he's so keen to get that bone that the other dog has got in its estimation that it growls and, of course, drops its bone. And so there's various morals to that story, but central to it is that the bone is so important. I mean, we have these concepts of, you talk about somebody who's completely obsessive and you say he's like a dog with a bone. Right. Dogs obsess about these things. It's so important. It's how they stimulate their brain chemicals, how they gain satisfaction as having been a big, tough, strong carnivore that defeated the prey and brought it down and had the reward now of being able to rip and tear and chew. So it's critically, critically important to them. And unfortunately, that has been completely traduced by the canned and kibble makers. And then all the so-called raw feeders are equally bad. They rush straight past raw meaty bones and dive straight into the dog's bowl filled with mush, minced meat and vegetables, and kefir supplement, and, oh, I, I despair. I utterly despair. 
So the key to the carnivore code is raw meaty bones. Mm. Everyone needs to know that. Mm. That is not nutrition. That is feeding 101. Mm. We should not even be talking about nutrition. It's nonsense to talk about what, what do we mean by um, arachidonic acid or uh, taurine or or the various proteins. So these are just English words. I mean, if you use Chinese or Mexican or that's Spanish, I suppose, um, <laughs> it would equally be unintelligible to people. They they will bandy the words about, but they're only words. If you gave people five piles of granules and said, well, which one's the taurine, they'd look at you completely mystified and, and have no idea. But yet on, on uh, chat groups, on the internet, on YouTube and Facebook and all, they'll happily talk about all these things as if they're incredibly knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. But actually they've got no clue. And they're talking, and it's a complete distraction to be talking about these various components. Mr. and Mrs. Caveman knew how to feed the wolves that were lurking around the cave entrance. They just shut the leftovers out the, the door and the wolves attacked it. They knew what to do. And now, alas, uh, the uh, the owners of the modified walls have no clue. No clue. I would agree with you on that. And I think you know, from my own experience, uh, we were talking briefly before we started the podcast of how I uh, started to get involved into understanding what to feed my dog as a result of him having health issues when he was younger. And when you're trying to find your own guidance for that, and you go into the abyss that is Google, for example, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming and it can feel incredibly frightening. And if you're somebody like me who who loves your dog dearly and you, you see it as your responsibility to do the best that you can, it can feel so overwhelming that there's a temptation to give into uh, transferring your authority and your agency and your intuitive knowing over to a company or somebody that presents as an authority to tell you what to do. And I think that's where a lot of pet parents find themselves really conflicted with recognizing they don't necessarily know where to get the information. And there's when you do go into that abyss of Google, there is just so much. Where do you even start to sift through? And the kind of irony, I think, is that your, your proposal of raw meaty bones being the basis in some respects can feel too simple for us. Like, well, what do you mean? Because I've heard you need to have all of these other things, right? I've, I've been told. Oh, that's it. Yeah. 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 Well, you've heard all the nonsense. That's the trouble. So mm-hmm. like I said earlier, the first thing you need to do is disabuse yourself of that nonsense. So you have to try and empty your mind of it. because That's very difficult. Um, so for most people, then it's just a case of putting things in suspense, just put them over there and hold them as being questionable truths that you hitherto believe implicitly, Mm. just put them there, Mm. then go back to basics. And look, I would recommend anybody, um, looking at this podcast to simply get a, a copy of work wonders, feed your dog raw meaty bones 
And that's it in 120 pages. That's all the information that you need. Mm-hmm. Do that and don't worry yourself any further. You spend some time looking at my um, YouTube channel uh, videos and TV shows. That would be handy. Um, so see the visual moving images. Uh, learn from what the the dogs and cats teach you. And uh, and it's as simple as in in every one um, they're ripping and tearing their raw meaty bones, and that's the answer, pure and simple. You don't need anything beyond that. Um, going on about must give liver, must give pancreas, must give uh, tripe, not true. Um, many of my clients only ever fed chicken wings and chicken frames and nothing else. Simple as. Now, clearly, that is not the whole carcass. It certainly isn't um, the carcass complete with fur, feathers and fins, the ideal, with the guts intact. But it's good enough. Uh, Nature is tolerant, very tolerant, um, gives wide latitude. And if, for instance, there's not much vitamin A um, in muscle, it doesn't matter. You you don't have to give liver just in order to get a big dose because there's enough in the carcass, in the, the raw meaty bones. Um, for the animals to to live wonderfully well. Um, At this time, there's been no longitudinal studies to compare raw meaty bones with junk food in the can or the the sachet, nor has it have the the studies been done to compare with the bath and the prey model and whatever. And they won't be done. They won't be done for many years. But does that mean that you should worry yourself about what that minor differentiation is? Answer no. Um, We've had 30 years of just feeding raw meaty bones and the clinical evidence is wonderfully uplifting. And it's in all of my videos there. There's another group of videos, um, before and after, that you can find on the Pet Food Com. And very good for people to go and have a look at that. I will include include the links. I will include the links to that in the show notes so people can easily navigate to that. Yeah, I I think that would be, and they will, it will take them quite a long time to to look at those because we show the before and the after and the, Mm -hmm. the time, what we start with and what we finish with. Most of those, of course, involve animals that have been poisoned with the junk food over an extended period and then they tend to have quite severe dental disease so besides stopping doing the the junk food thing so that's the number one thing for people watching this video stop stop doing the bad stuff stop giving the canned and the dry stop giving the bath Stop giving the minced vegetables and all the rubbish. Uh, stop doing that. Then pay attention to that fundamental need for the dogs and cats as well to rip and tear and chew and stimulate the endorphins in the brain. Tell the stomach that something's on the way down and therefore get the digestive enzymes flowing and so on. Right. So, so these are the things that um, people need to do. Stop doing the bad stuff. Keep their thoughts as to what they've been told by so many self-styled experts 
keep those in abeyance. Get yourself some big pieces of raw meaty bones. Chuck them to your cat, dog, puppy, kitten, and learn from what they teach you. That's what you should do. That's beautiful. And it's it's something that we're quite afraid of doing in many respects. And yet it's so fundamental that trusting that your dog knows exactly what it needs. And we, we see trends of this coming back up with um, like Caroline Ingraham developing zoo pharmacognosy, essentially self-selection. How can you present watching how animals in the wild will self-select medicines, et cetera, or they'll eat certain things where, where they just know that that's what they need and they'll refuse other things because they don't need it at that time. And if we're honest with ourselves, when we, when we actually listen to our own bodies. And I actually think that that's part of the core reason we are distrustful of how we feed our dogs because we have become so disconnected in many respects from our own food systems and from our own bodies that we don't necessarily listen to what it is that we, what we actually need. But if we can regain that sense of trust in our dog and allow them to lead us to show and not be afraid, if your dog doesn't want to eat one day, it doesn't automatically mean your dog's really ill and you need to run to the vet. You know, I, th I think there's that kind of mentality as well of um, if they're not doing exactly what I've been told that they should be doing, then there's something wrong. Or if they've, they've, they've decided that they're not eating liver, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I need to get that into them, that kind of a thing. And so it really is about a conversation and about a developing a sense of trust. Yeah. For sure. And learning from your dog. And so mm. that's why I say this is a fantastic experiment that can be run in the lounge rooms of the world. And people can see their, uh, their pet carnivore being transformed in health before their very eyes in the space of about a week ordinarily when you start off with a junk food fed dog or cat and once you change it over then a week later ordinarily you can see a major transformation you might see it even within days mm. and um, you'll see of course the breath will improve straight away so all those toxic fumes that were, were otherwise going to the heavens and the toxic juices from the teeth and gums going in the circulatory system, that stops. Mm -hmm. the, the, the hair coat will improve. I mean, there were two um, Rhodesian Ridgebacks belonging to a lady, and, and she came in a couple of weeks after she'd made the transition. She said one had changed colour and the other had got a silky coat, and, and this was wow. really noticeable that she could, yeah, well, why would, why would the dog change colour? Not dramatically. I mean, it just went from a, a mousy brown to a a copper colored hue uh, uh, well of course because the hair follicles were then growing in healthy skin uh, so the hair was growing in their, their hair follicles and the follicles were in the healthy skin and the healthy skin covered a healthy body with a healthy immune system and a healthy liver and healthy kidneys and so on mm. so that's why um, these hair follicles started to mm. produce more pigment in the hair and that's mm -hmm. the sort of thing that you genuinely can see so now pe people will see this for themselves but let me go back again and say look go and watch the videos go and see the videos and gain confidence right from the get-go that this has been done now for 30 years on a regular basis that 
I ran a veterinary clinic where I had responsibility for the patients under my care and I had to treat my clients with fairness and integrity. So everything I'm saying now is what I was doing on a one-to-one basis for the last 30-odd years Mm. um, regularly without variation. We were always looking out for things where we might have got things wrong needed to improve so okay uh, in that regard um the less processing you do the better ideally you feed complete with fur feathers and fins as the carnivore would pull down in the wild so in your own case with a chihuahua well your feathers would be on day old chicks or um partridges or pigeons or something you would get fish about yay big whole complete Mm -hmm. with um, scales and fins yeah and uh if you could get rats and mice and small rabbits that sort of thing would be the ideal the next best thing is uh well in your case um chicken wings mm, even they are probably too bony and too risky and they can bite off shards of even cooked bone uh, even raw bone mm. um so you really, half a chicken would be a better go. Mm-hmm. Let your dog rip and tear and chew, get all those endorphins travelling around, clean the teeth, tell the stomach something's on the way down. And let your dog eat that today and then in the fridge overnight, bring it out the next day and let him or her finish it off. But if she doesn't choose to because she had a big feed the day before, fine, put it back in the fridge. And you can do that over several days. But always start big. Don't be mincing and chopping and and forming uh, different recipes according to the latest guru self-styled on the internet. Mm. Don't do it. Just Mm. just avoid all of that rubbish, nonsense. Mm. And don't have a bowl. Or maybe for convenience, it might suit you to put your raw meat bone in a bowl as you carry it to the outside. Out on the lawn is a, a good place if you've got. If you don't, well, even in the backyard, on concrete, anywhere. But again, look at the video. See where my patients have been feeding on their raw meat bones and see yeah. how they do it. Yeah, yes. And... Uh... I'd like to circle back to how you initially came to some of this, these conclusions. And you had mentioned that it was primarily because of the amount of periodontal disease that you were seeing in patients. Is that right? That was the big trigger. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the question, finally, it took me 20 years to wake up to that. I am a bit of a slow learner. I'm sorry. Uh, But eventually uh, came to understand. And there was talk from some of my colleagues, uh, Brett Muir, Alan Bennett, even Ian Billinghurst, at that time was prepared to accentuate the needs for raw meaty bones until he started to make his mince mush. But the discussion back then in the late 80s and early 90s, and um, we had a pretty furious letter-writing campaign in the pages of the Australian Veterinary Journal and the Australian Veterinary News. And um, and so people really started to take account of this. 
at that time. I, for me, it was probably what I've been in questing for the past 20 or 30 years. I knew there was something intuitively not right. And the more I looked into this, the more I saw that this massive issue that we had effectively uh, modified the wolves and then insisted that they be fed on this modified, well, it's not even modified food. It's, It's completely alien and different. And it was a rich field of of inquiry. And so we dug deep and found every stone we turned, we found new information under it. It was an amazing period of discovery. It was like exploring not just a new continent, a new planet. It was like actually getting in a spaceship and going to a new and undiscovered planet. And there was information everywhere. Oh, it was an extraordinary period of exhilaration every day. Between 1991-93, I was just completely besotted with this information that was just coming from every quarter. Um, I sent a, a, a letter to um, Dr. Douglas Bryden, who was the director of the Centre for Veterinary Education at that time at Sydney University. And I twisted his arm mightily. I said he should come out to my practice. Um, it would be worth his effort a thousandfold to get in his car and come and see what we were doing. And will you say that even to Elon Musk, if it was worth his while a thousandfold, then he would make squillions more dollars he, he would still come out to our practice i would i reckon anyone who you could promise them the thousandfold investment on the return on their investment yeah. they would come out so he anyway dr bryden he um there was an angry voice on the phone one day and i answered and he said uh dr bryden here oh dr bryden Yes, I'll be out on Friday. Oh, yes, thank you, Dr. Bryden. What what time, Dr. Bryden? Seven o'clock. Will that be a.m. or p.m., Dr. Bryden? A.m., he, you know, his first reply came. Very well, Dr. Bryden, we'll see you at seven o'clock on Friday. Well, we organised the breakfast welcome. So we had croissants uh, in the oven. We had coffee on the hob. Um, some fine blackcurrant jam, probably Scottish blackcurrant jam, <laughs> very special. And um, it, yeah, and he um, he came and he arrived at the appointed hour, seven a.m. He'd driven an hour from Sydney, so he got up really early to to get to us. And uh, I said, "How long will you be here, Doctor?" A oh, half an hour. Five hours later, he staggered out a changed man. Wow. Now, he pretty much the only, there was one other veterinary dentist who came out one time, but he, I think over the 20 or 30 years, he's the only vet that's actually visited, but he did. And a few days later, um, the call came and he said, Roy, well, look, Write all that down and, and give it to me, and I'll give it to Dr. Stephen Coles, who's running the 
veterinary dentistry course and he will then be able to uh, disseminate that information and I refused I said I'm not going to give it to Stephen Coles who's in the pack well in cahoots with the junk pet food industry in no way um so um as much as I wanted the information to be got out to a wider audience I, I declined a couple of days later the call comes again write it down yourself then I said, well, yes, Dr. Bryden, but I'm taking my two young sons on a parental access two-week holiday and tomorrow. Get it to me in two weeks, he said. Oh, okay. So <laughs> I put my young sons to bed and sat out by the veranda night, the, the streetlights on the, 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 um, the balcony. And I wrote this, this, uh, chapter to a book and that was published in 1993 and it's the preventative dentistry chapter so that was the first and last word on how you feed your dog and look after its teeth and gums and it was published by the university of sydney at the direction of dr douglas bryden but it's mostly been marked by inattention, by being ignored by vets and certainly by the um, the internet gurus who hold forth on how you should feed your dog. But there you are, back in, it was written in early 93, two weeks in February, I think you want, published in June of that year, and it stood the test of time. Uh, so that's 30 years, isn't it? It is. It 30 is years. Um, and I recommend it to all people to just simply go and have a look at that. Mm. I lead off with the concepts of cybernetics and how the interconnectivity of everything mm. and how vitally important that is. Um, you know, still yarning about this. So... After Dr. Bryden came that time, I gave him a copy of um, James Lovelock's Gaia, um, A New Look at Life on Earth, I think it is the subtitle. But anyway, Gaia, G-A-I-A. And, and he took it and he said, yeah, he read it in one session, sitting under a tree with his back to the tree trunk. And he was blown away by that particular book. A couple of years later, well, no, not maybe a year later, I sent him my cybernetic hypothesis of periodontal disease in mammalian carnivores. Um, and I asked him to publish it. I said I was having difficulty finding a publisher. The Australian Veterinary Journal had rejected it and said that it would even invite a legal action from the pet food companies for even considering what I was saying. Um, and he looked at this article that I sent to him and he declined to publish it as well. Um, but on the grounds, he said, it was too important for him to publish. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So here was somebody who really did fully understand what we were going on about as of his five-hour meeting in our practice 
and all the information that I sent him across his desk over the succeeding months and years. And he said, no, I won't. Lo and behold, I'm, I'm blown away by this fact, but I submitted it to the Journal of Veterinary Dentistry in America, who did publish it. And it's there on the internet for all to see from that time. Wow. But again, it's been studiously ignored. The Journal of Veterinary Dentistry, obviously, behind the scenes, talked amongst themselves, saw the importance of this, and probably without due regard to their own safety and security, published it. But once it was published, I suspect people saw that, oh, that offends the big players, that the junk pet food titans and the university deans of veterinary schools and so on. So everyone now will, it's almost impossible to get anyone to talk about it. Mm. Mm. So that's the sort of history of this. Yeah, yeah. I'd like you to talk a bit more about the theory itself. And specifically, so you've mentioned for those who are not familiar with Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis, that's the notion that the earth is a living ecosystem, that everything is interconnected. And your theory, your hypothesis of cybernetics draws upon that and specifically looking at cybernetics being the ways in which various systems are communicating with one another. And that's that sense of a feedback loop is kind of critical to it. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about what what you have included in that hypothesis and specifically how that relates to periodontal disease. Excuse me. Well, okay, James Lovelock, um, he conceived of this idea that the Earth is like a living entity with a physiology it has an anatomy of course it has continents and and um oceans and 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 atmospheres and, and so on that's its anatomy but the physiology it all interlinks and uh and then he then started to cooperate or collaborate with uh lynn margulis professor lynn margulis who um previously had been married to uh Carl Sagan, the renowned astronomer. So these are pretty uh, um, heavy intellectual hitters, really. They're, they're very clever people. And they worked out interconnectivity of many things. And then Margulis in particular uh, used to accentuate that we're all co-evolved. So the simple Darwinian concept of the survival of the fittest and nature tooth in, red in tooth and claw and, and all clambering over each other and so on, actually is probably not quite right. And uh, that uh, we, we, in some ways, we need our enemies as much as we need our friends. We need death as much as we need life. All right, all right, that, that's a new sort of way of thinking. Um, and that all elements of our planet grew up together. No, no one 
species, no one plant, no one animal, no one anything, um, outstripped all the others. We all came along um, as individuals and as communities. So this, this co-evolution is very important. And then you start to look at what the different elements might be and how they might interrelate, how they might interact. And so, well, to cut to the chase, way, way back, about three and a half, four billion years ago, the first, first microbes on the planet were anaerobes that lived in an oxygen-free atmosphere and that they emerged from the primeval slime and then started to colonize the planet. They're still here. They haven't changed. <laughs> and, they're, and they're in your gums and in your bowel and they're in the sewerage and they're in the soil and they quite likely have been running this planet for their own benefit all that time. <laughs> yeah. What? Could that? Yes. Well, and how do they, how do they work in, in carnivore gums? Right, well, okay, in the age of mammals, and that took place, I don't know, after after the dinosaurs went. Mm -hmm. I can't exactly remember the, ge the, the geological time, but um, during this age of mammals, and prior to the time when man picked up the club, when man picked up the club, he became the dominant predator. But prior to that, he was a food source and a competing predator but he wasn't the dominant one. So the dominant predators were the carnivores, full-on carnivores with the canine teeth, the big, sharp teeth used for going out and killing their prey, and so the cats and the canids and the bears to an extent. And they were the regulators. So in this balanced ecosystem that James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis are talking about, they, and they talk in general terms, I conceived of this notion um, in a dream in the night on Christmas night, 1992, that the carnivores were the regulators of the rest of the system and that they regulated the herbivores, for instance, sheep or deer or goats or whatever, which in turn regulated the herbage. And that's all very well. But what regulates the regulator? Right. Because you, you must have a circle. You can't have a linear progression because mm -hmm. otherwise it runs out of control. So you have to loop it back. And then I started to think, well, maybe the regulator of the, the supreme regulators here may be their gum disease. And so I guess I'm skipping a few different steps in this. But basically, if the carnivore is ripping and tearing at its prey and therefore doing its job, therefore having its major impact on the environment because the interface between the carnivore and its environment is actually its teeth. 
that's where it has the big impact on its environment, which it constitutes its prey. And whilst ever it's using its teeth to sink into its prey, it's doing its job. Therefore, isn't that a good thing? It's got a job to do. But when it ceases to have a job to do, when the prey is too scarce, then suddenly it's not doing its job right. You don't want it to do its job because there's too few of the prey. What happens for this carnivore, which then is not doing its job? Well, this is the time when the anaerobes come to the fore. They were always sitting there in the guts, but now suddenly they get a new waiting for this (laughs) opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And then they flourish. And then they bring about the the inflammation, which is characterised by the red and sore gums and the bleeding gums, but also the stinky breath. It's because they give off all these toxic fumes, which are high, strong smelling in hydrogen sulfide and other such uh, gases, which, to my way of thinking, is another communication system because the stinky breath then tells all the prey, oh, this is a defective wolf or a defective lion or whatever. Um, The other members of the pack or the community realise that this is one that has not been eating, has not been cleaning its teeth, therefore it's on the outer. Therefore it gets ostracised or even set upon by the rest of the pack. And so you've got all these linkages taking place and communication at a distance. So, uh, you know, you can reckon the prey and other predators would know that if this wolf has got stinky breath, they would know about it, possibly over several hundred metres, maybe even further, just with the odour that comes away from that stinky breath. Simultaneously, and we don't know this, but it is possible that they, the particular carnivores, would be aware of the the stinky odor going up its nostrils, but also the the taste of the stinky saliva, taste of the the foul tasting saliva. It could be that that goes up into the vomeronasal organ, because nobody's really explained the purpose of the vomeronasal organ. That's right. But if this, is a, if this is a way of sensing the health of the saliva, wouldn't that be a really accurate little mechanism that would tell the individual carnivore its place in the hierarchy and what it needs to do about things? Mm-hmm. And some of this is, is not linear. So, okay, the, the carnivore goes hungry for a couple of weeks, it's got an empty belly, its muscles are starting to shrink, it starts to be in trouble, it's got a stinky breath, it's got foul-tasting saliva. But then it gets lucky and happens across a dead elephant, for instance. Okay, you can sit there and eat the dead elephant for a couple of weeks, clean up its teeth and gums, regain its strength, and go out hunt again. So it's it's not all or nothing. It's many interrelated, interconnecting aspects. A very important part of all this, though, is that, and it's in Raw Meaty Bones, the book, 
and in chapter two or three, um, that the immune system, that hitherto we've considered the immune system to be here to protect us. Well, yes, the immune system is comprised of many, many different components, lots, and they can be working together or independently or whatever. But they can also, I suggest, be used to kill the patient. So hitherto, when we've said, oh, the immune system must be malfunctioning when you've got hyperimmune disease or autoimmune disease or hope hypoimmune disease. No, it could be that various feedback loops have told the immune system to go and do the opposite of what it was previously doing. It's two two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. And I think I increasingly um, I think people will come to realise that that is what probably has been going on. Now, of course, we don't actually want the immune system to kill us, either our patients or, or ourselves. So it is an opportunity, therefore, to do more research to try and prevent the immune system taking it upon itself to kill the host. Um, but Nonetheless, I feel that this is all part of this cybernetic wonderful system of interconnected signaling systems where bacteria talk to other bacteria and bacteria talk to mammalian cells and mammalian cells talk to mammalian organs and mammalian organs then produce hormones and or uh, neurological signals and so on within the individual but then the individual is part of a group or a community and that group or community then signals to a wider environment and then the environment feeds back into all of this and so it's all hanging together wonderfully well and then it's encapsulated in your dog on your hearth rug ripping and tearing it apart and you think whoa okay the interconnectivity of all this is wonderful Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it, it's just beautiful. It really is. I mean, that is part of what I see as the kind of spiritual aspect of all this, like the absolute beauty and the perfection in these interconnected systems is just amazing. And I think one of the fears that I have is how humans have messed with that and continue to mess with that. And a kind of question that I have around around those systems and how they're functioning with the ways in which we feed our dogs right now is because we as humans have changed, for example, the way that we do agriculture and the way that we are raising the animals that we are then feeding to our dogs. Many of those animals being raised in absolutely horrific conditions, never seeing the light of day, cramped, and that having an impact, obviously, on, on that animal that then gets passed down to, to our animal. How do you see the future of the way in which we feed our dogs from this perspective of, in order to honor them as, as carnivores, feeding them these raw meaty bones, when we have drastically changed the the structure of the animal, the nutrient contents of the animal, even the way in which trauma is potentially stored within the animal's cells. I didn't quite hear that. Say that again. Oh, sorry. The the way in which, the way, how humans have drastically changed. So I guess kind of to to, to go back where 
you know, if we're looking at the ways in which wild carnivores have been able to hunt prey, for example, and the way that we are mm -hmm. feed, we have raised animals in such a decrepit way that we are then feeding to, to our animals. How do we, how do you actually envision the future of the way that we are able to support in this case, dogs being the true carnivores that they are and thinking of it from this, this wider system, how do we actually improve the system to ensure that we are able to feed our dogs in an appropriate way? Um, well, my view is don't worry about all of that. That is so far down the track that is a, not a consequence here and now. Uh, you can perfectly adequately feed your dog or cat on farmed animals. And the distinction between the jungle fowl uh, perched high in a primordial forest and, and the chook that's been raised in a factory farm isn't that significant in terms of how that's going to impact the health of the carnival that eats it. A greater consequence is that it should rip and tear and chew. Mm -hmm. It should be the whole barnyard fowl as opposed to the minced fowl. That's the critical thing, cleaning the teeth, stimulating the brain chemicals, telling the stomach something's on the way down, maintaining the physiology of your carnival pet. Mm -hmm. Worrying about esoteric notions about, well, we should actually have gone out with a blowpipe and brought down the, the, the jungle fowl and then brought it home is not something that we should concern ourselves with, not at all. Um, you can feed the pork neck bone. You can feed the pig's head from the saddleback or the large white pig you don't have to go and get a wild boar mm -hmm. and and drag it back in order to do the right thing by your pet carnival um absolutely not so we should stop worrying about depleted nutrients in the soil and and all of that sort of thing that is so relatively insignificant in the scheme of things that we should banish the thought don't even spend a moment don't the distinction between feeding out the can and the bag as opposed to feeding the raw meaty bones is chalk and cheese that's the wrong metaphor but anyway it's so <laughs> huge the difference that you just don't need to worry so long as you stop feeding out the can and the sack and do feed raw meat bones in big pieces appropriate to the size of your carnivore, you will be doing just fine. Um, in terms, though, of our uh, impact on the environment, then there's, there's a statistic that says 19% of American farmland is given over to the feeding of pets. That is serious. That is very serious in terms of our environmental footprint um the keeping of a labrador dog is said to involve as much energy usage as driving a mid-range or even large uh, sports utility vehicle mm -hmm. so we have been pushed into 
getting these modified walls into our lives, regardless of the cost. And I think you were saying that um, we seem to be doing all of these things without proper regard for the environment that sustains us. We all depend on the environment. And we've done this to the detriment of to the the natural world and all the other inhabitants. Mm -hmm. And we've polluted the planet with carbon dioxide and we're in a bad situation. So we do need to pull back. And I would suggest to you that 19% of American farmland should not be given over to feeding carnivorous pets. We need to think again. And I think we will think again once we ban, or it's not so much ban, it's just enact, just enforce existing laws against false and misleading advertising by the junk pet food companies. So they are engaged in massive fraud and it's very cruel. It's fraudulent to suggest that their stuff in the can and the sack is suitable and safe. It's also cruel to recommend that carnivores, which we know should be ripping and tearing at the raw meat bone, should be adequately fed out of their cat and junk and, and therefore subject to a lifetime of misery, not only physical but also mental, mental distress that they can't rip and tear and chew and do what nature intended. So once you enforce the law, all of that will stop. And then I would suggest a lot of people will elect not to get a dog or a cat. And those that do will have a better, fuller understanding of the needs of those animals. And then there'll be much more harmony and it'll be much better health and a general better vibe. The, the um, zeitgeist will be altogether better once we stop the domination of Mars, Nestle and Colgate mm -hmm. and what they are doing to the planet and doing it through us. They're conning our communities to do the worst things for the planet, not the best. Right. So my three books is all about improving the health of the animals, improving the health of the planet, improving people's appreciation of their place on the planet. And I think you get an uplift from all this once you delve deeply into it. Yeah. I encourage people to do so. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wonder too, because one of the things that you've raised as well is not it's not just about the pet food companies having control over the creation of the food and selling it to the general population, but it's these big companies that are even involved in funding veterinary schools, for example. And so vets are then taught about nutrition via these large companies, and then those same vets go and sell the, that food in their practices. And so much of the vet's practice the, in terms of the income is reliant upon that relationship. And I wonder what you see as the kind of future for the veterinary industry, should that be changed? Well, it needs to be changed. And um, I'm gonna cough, excuse me. <laughs> 
Yes, of course. And um, yeah, once once people read the three books, the, the, these things that you know, I'm advertising up here, they will come to understand that the veterinary profession has really been a massive criminal cult that has been defrauding the um, customers and being cruel to the patients under their care. You can't see it in any other way. Doug Bryden saw that in 1993 when he said, look, write all this down. He was a changed man after five hours of being in our practice. You don't need to spend five hours in our practice. You just go on the on the um, YouTube and see the videos and you'll see the answer to that. So what was the question again? I've lost the thread. What do you see as the future of the veterinary, veterinary industry? Of course. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Um, what What is the future? Well, ultimately, it will be a good future. But they have to stop going on the course that they're on now. Mm. Uh, they will get the same uplift that I get once they really reject all the the previous bad notions that inform their thinking. Once they see their patients really pick up their bed and walk. I mean, it's like that. <laughs> you have these sick animals sad bedraggled creatures that brought in and then you see them a couple of weeks later and they're bounding out of their skin and they've transformed so ultimately it will be fine but in the interim um there needs to be political action and there needs to be legal action to get them to desist just appealing to their better nature doesn't work the reason being they don't have a better nature it is very serious um most people in positions of power abuse that power. That's what the vets do. They very seriously abuse their power. And so that has to be called into called to account. And uh, in that regard, I'm quite heartened because if you go to the petfoodcon.com, you can see um, campaigning for better pet health. And on that page, you will start to see some of the political actions being taken to bring this change about. And the, the House of let me cough again, excuse me. Sure. The House of Commons EFRACOM committee um, invited me to make a submission to their pet welfare and abuse inquiry. Now, the House of Commons, we all know, is the lower house of the British Parliament. And EFRACOM is the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Committee that are now looking at pet welfare and abuse. I saw a video of them interviewing members of the British Veterinary Association, the PDSA, People's Dispensary of Small Animals. And I thought, ah. They're interested in, in looking at a subject that I've written a book on, 446 pages of it, and I sent them a copy. Didn't expect to hear. Ten days later, I did hear. They looked at the book. They looked at this one and decided that Lonsdale was somebody that they ought to hear from. So even though the... Uh, the, the expiry date of the 
for uh, submissions had, had long gone in April. In July, they said, hey, can you, um, would you consider putting in a, a submission for um, public publication? I said, most certainly. And uh, my little fingers started to get to work on the keyboard. <laughs> and I sent in, I sent in a submission and you can see that there. Brilliant. And it links also to two other submissions. One is to the vet workforce shortage in New South Wales, which is a global phenomenon. And another inquiry, which is into the pounds, that, that's the council pounds, the, the um, what do you call them? The, uh, well, um, shelters. Shelters is the word you use. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so they, they're doing an inquiry into the shelters in New South Wales as well, because they're full to overflowing with all these people who've been watching the pet food ads and thinking, oh, I'll get a furry toy, and then they get the furry toy, and then they find that actually it, it chews the leg of the furniture and or um, runs away and doesn't behave as they would like it to because the furry toy that they bought from the toy shop, we just sat there on the shelf and was nice and neat and, and clean and tidy. And then this other one suddenly, no, it has all sorts of <laughs> physiological, biological needs. Oh, dear, can't cope with that. Into the pound. Right. So the pound's overflowing. So, again, I made a submission to that as well. And they're all there. So this is starting to come to the fore. And you, so I would recommend people start to become active. We've got to become much, much more militant. Um, we need to band together and bring class actions against the criminals. And for those of you over in the US of A, you're aware that um, Donald Trump and his uh, co-conspirators are all being hauled up on RICO charges, racketeering, improper conduct and corrupt organisations act for conspiracy to do bad things. Well, I suggest that you need to enforce the RICO acts against Mars, Neste, Colgate and the veterinary schools. The veterinary schools have knowingly been doing the wrong thing for a very long time. They lure in young, impressionable people and fill their heads with garbage. And, and they know it's garbage. We've got a new cartoon being created right now, and we're just perfecting it. And it's, um, it's a picture of um, a zoo fence. So, <clears throat> and there's the fence. It's in a zoo. It's marked zoo. And on the one side, you've got a German wolf, an Alaskan wolf and a Siberian wolf, right, a German, Alaskan, and a Siberian wolf on one side of the fence. On the other side, you've got a German shepherd, an Alaskan Malamute, and a Siberian husky. <laughs> and they're eating completely different things. Yeah. But both sides of the fence... The vets are advising. So they talk out of both sides of their mouths. Right. The German wolf, the Alaskan wolf, and the Siberian wolf are supposed to eat whole carcasses. But 
to there on that side of the fence. But this fence is the demarcation. On this side, the German Shepherd, the Alaska Malamute, the side, which look precisely the same as, and their physiology is pretty much identical to. No, they have to be fed out of Mars nests and, uh, and Colgate jump packets and, and cans. The hypocrisy is mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. The illegality of this. This is massively illegal to deceive your consumers, defraud the, the, the public. It's hugely illegal for, school, for veterinary schools to take young people and render them stupid and ineffectual and then send them out into the community filled up with all the wrong ideas that happen to coincide with the interests of their sponsors right. who they're taking hush money from. Right. Just get high-ranking lawyers onto this and we'll see a difference. Mm. I sent it, I sent this book to a high-ranking lawyer um, for a publication on um, competition and consumer law. He agreed to review the book, but actually when he got it, he said, ah, oh, look, actually it's not a law book as I thought it would be with black leather law and detailed as to how to prosecute. And so he didn't review the book. But he said, it's not to say it's a bad book. On the contrary, it's an excellent book. <laughs> I think I think it's a manifesto, and in part it's a diatribe, but it's an excellent book. So there, so it is the foundation. I believe, for successful prosecutions of the vets and the junk pet foods. And I say, bring it on. Mm. <laughs> it's exciting to see that things could possibly change. It really is. Well, if there's a will, there's Absolutely. A Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, there's a question I like to ask each of my guests, and I, I wonder if you'd be so gracious as to answer it for me uh, this time. But one of the things I'd like to, to kind of uh, look at is, in your experience, whether it's your own dogs or it's the dogs that you've seen in practice, what do you feel that dogs have taught you about what it means to be human? Oh. Well, it's taught me what a privilege it is to be human. Mm. It is extraordinary. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 really very very important. Um, and once you start to appreciate the privilege that we've got. Mm -hmm. um, you can relate to them and recognize their specialties and be in awe of their 
their athleticism, their visual acuity, their auditory acuity, their sense of smell, their sense of joy, their sense of what it is for them that makes them canines and what makes them They are gifts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even, you know, silly little diminutive chihuahuas. Yes. You know, they, <laughs> they, think, they think they're wolves. They think they're big, powerful carnivores. You can't help but admire them. I know. For their delusions, complete delusions. <laughs> You know, uh, um, and y- yeah, I, I mean, I've got pictures. Th- this was my secretary's um, dog, Gidget, and, and I remember her. This this is um, Jed, and, oh. um, and this is where he was a baby, and here he is when he's grown up. Beautiful. Yeah. 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 I am of the opinion that dogs are our biggest teachers in many respects when they come into our lives. And as I had mentioned to you before we started recording that I had gone to see the curandero who told me that I needed to be on the lookout for dogs and cats that crossed my path because they were healers for me and teachers for me. And I don't think I realized what that really meant until this little 4.3 kilo wolf came into my home. And as you, as you said, he thinks he, he definitely thinks he is and has taught me more than I could ever show him gratitude for. That's right. And, and the, so therefore you owe him in return the very best you can do and for them the very best in their mind is to be able to rip and tear and chew at a the key to the carnivore coat the raw meaty bones um and i'll just reach for this thing here and and look at this abomination so i'm now bringing in a degree of negativity but i found this in the paddock the other day and this is what our society does Um, to those animals that so crave to rip and tear and chew and they make plastic bones and you can if if you can see this thing and if i bring it closer to the camera you can see some poor dog not mine um, but somebody it had been sinking its canine teeth into this thing at the end said desperate to try and get some benefit but you know being cheated all the way through. So that's what we do with the modified walls. We cheat them. Mm-hmm. We de- defraud them. We deny them what they need. Um, so just turn that around. Stop feeding out of the can. Pack it. Feed them raw meat bones. You will have a happy, healthy carnivore and your spirits will be uplifted too. I think that's the absolute perfect way to end this conversation. That's just beautiful. I couldn't agree more with you. 
Dr. Tom Lonsdale, thank you so much for joining us today. I know people are going to take away so much, and I will absolutely leave links to your books, your website, et cetera, so they can dive in and learn all they want to learn about how to feed your dogs raw meaty bones. Thank you so much. Thanks, Alexia. You're a pal. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation with Dr. Tom Lonsdale. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed speaking with him. It was such an honor, and I'm so grateful that he took the time to share his story and his wisdom with us. What are your takeaways from this episode? Come on over to Instagram at Mystic Dog Mama and let me know. And also let me know what other questions you have about feeding your dog or topics you want me to cover in future episodes to help you live your best Mystic Dog Mama or Papa life with your own pup. I'm all ears. You can find out all you want to know about Dr. Tom Lonsdale's work, books, and videos by visiting his website, thepetfoodcon.com. I've left the link in the show notes. All right, until next time.